0: So hello and good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us here at the Atlantic Council this morning. I'm very pleased to welcome you to the release of our atlantic council strategy paper uh, on iran entitled a new strategy for u.s iran relations in transition uh, authored by our own distinguished fellow uh, ellen Lapson. my name is daniel chu i'm deputy uh, director of the scowcroft center and i'm director of the strategy initiative here at the atlantic council uh, where we host the atlantic council Uh, strategy paper series. Let me tell you a little bit about the series and how this paper fits into it. Uh, We started the series a couple of years ago really uh, as an effort to put issues from a more strategic perspective back on the table in a much more constructive and productive way uh, to encourage dialogue. Uh, We don't claim to have the answers, we do claim uh, to have important uh, issues that we think require uh, more and better discussion than frankly you tend to hear in a political year like we have uh, today. So we put out this uh, strategy paper series that covers uh, a range of functional and regional issues Uh, and then we put out this Iran paper in particular Uh, and even though it doesn't fall in the usual will be in a functional or broad regional, we felt in this year in particular, it was really critical uh, to do so. Between the recent developments uh, with regard to the nuclear agreement with Iran and the current presidential election here in the United States and upcoming elections uh, in Iran, we thought this was not only uh, extremely important to raise at this time, uh, but a pretty critical issue to raise again, hopefully in a more strategic and constructive uh, manner so that's what we're doing here with the atlantic council strategy paper and that's why we're so pleased uh to present ellen's paper uh on iran's strategy Uh, i think as many of you in the room here know that the council has been been doing a lot of work uh, on the middle east and iran Uh, during the last election we put out a series of memos uh, for the president with a prominent article dealing uh, with iran Uh, The council has uh, an Iran task force uh, that looks into multiple facets uh, of the relationship, uh, and our Hariri center here, of course, uh, looks at uh, political transitions in the Middle East uh, region. Now, in particular, as we're looking uh, to welcome a new administration uh, in the new year. It is, of course, as I said before, a very important time to think about uh, our relationship in particular with Iran. Uh, and Ellen's paper, I think, is a really great uh, place to start. Uh, as you'll see, hopefully you've all had a chance to grab a hard copy of this. You'll see a great uh, forward in there from General Scowcroft uh, where he says that this uh, uh, this work by Ellen presents a strategic approach for how the United States can best engage Iran in the service of our vital uh, interests in the term turbulent but critically important uh, Middle East. Uh, I'll add to this that what I really like about what Ellen's done here is she's really presented a balanced approach to looking at this uh, issue, really tried to scope out the context for us, again, to have a really constructive dialogue on this without doing what I see in so many other discussions on this topic, which is really to gravitate gravitate towards the kind of ends of the debate of either hoping for the best uh, or assuming the worst. Former Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel uh, also said that the strategy in this paper uh, can help seize this historic opportunity for change, uh, and I couldn't agree more. So with that, let me get to the discussion I I keep saying I hope we'll have on this. First, my thanks to the Middle East Peace and Security Initiative uh, in our Brent Scowcroft Center, uh, especially Owen Daniels uh, for his very hard work in getting this paper uh, here. I think Ellen and I both very much appreciate uh, all the work that uh, uh, Owen has done on this. And of course, great thanks uh, to Ellen for not only pulling this uh, all together for us, uh, but really making this a compelling read uh, as we head into uh, the election and a new administration. Uh, As you know, uh, it wouldn't be a think tank event if we didn't have a panel, so I'm gonna introduce very briefly uh, the panel to you. Ellen, of course, I've mentioned a few times, is our distinguished fellow uh, in the the Atlantic Council Scowcraft Center. She was president and CEO of the Stimson Center from 2002 to October 2015, uh, and she was also in government for 25 years, most prominently as the vice chair uh, of the National Intelligence Council from 1997 to 2002. We're also joined by Amir Hanjani. Uh, He is a council board director uh, and president of PG International Commodity Trading Services, where he works on facilitating humanitarian trade into the Iranian market, uh, among other things. And he's also a Truman National Security Fellow. Uh, Also joining us is Michael Connell, who is the Director of Iranian Studies, uh, the Iranian Studies Program at uh, the Center for Naval Analysis, my old stomping grounds, uh, actually. Uh, He has authored several studies that focus on political, military and security issues related to Iran uh, and the other Persian Gulf countries. His most recent work focuses on Iranian military culture, uh, mill-to-mill engagement strategies, and Iran-GCC relations. Uh, He was also an intelligence officer in the U.S. uh, Army. Uh, And finally, our moderator today, uh, most of you will know, uh, is David Sanger, uh, the national, a national security, the national, I'll say, the national security correspondent uh, for the New York Times and one of the paper's senior writers. Uh, He's author of two bestsellers on foreign policy and national security The Inheritance, The World Obama Confronts, and The Challenges to American Power, uh, and Confront and Conceal. Uh, Obama's secret wars and surprising uses uh, of American power. Uh, I'm going to hand the floor over to the panel, and David will lead us, as I've said. Uh, we very much view this as a discussion. We appreciate you all joining us today, here today, uh, and hope you'll join in with us uh, on this very important topic. Please, David.
1: Well, thank you, uh, Dan, for uh, that introduction. Thank all of you for um, coming uh, out here today. Thanks to the Atlantic Council. It's a great honor to be at uh, the Scowcroft Center um, here. Uh, Brent has been a, a mentor uh, to me and to many in this room as I look uh, around. And so I can think of uh, nothing that would make him happier than uh, this kind of discussion that we're, uh, that we're having today. Uh, and thanks to you, Ellen, for getting this conversation going. I read through the report, and here's my, here was my, my immediate reaction. It's a terrible report for the next 21 days, okay, <laughs> where I'm afraid the conversation about what to do with Iran is going to be uh, limited, probably including tonight, to a, a series of bumper stickers about whether the deal was good or bad. It's a superb report for everything after November 9th, okay? (laughs) So a good thing to get it out there and circulating for the next couple of weeks because whoever wins uh, the presidency is going to have to go deal with a much more uh, complex and I think in in many ways much more nuanced Iran policy than uh, we've had. Um, Ellen and I have talked about Iran uh, a lot uh, over the past couple of years as I've been covering uh, the deal and as we've traveled together to various conferences and so forth. And I guess my assessment at uh, 15 months out is that within the four corners of the deal, it's working. The Iranians have done just about everything that they said they were going to go do. There are occasional arguments you hear here and there about um, uh, small elements, but they're almost all completely at the margins. Outside the deal, anything that did not fall within those 130 odd uh, pages of the agreement, I would say the situation is about the same and in some cases worse than it was when the deal was signed. Iran's activities with Hezbollah and support of Assad, its challenges to the Saudis, its support of destabilization, the problems in Yemen, um, and even its rhetoric about the United States, the sentencing yesterday of two uh, Iranian Americans, all suggests that the political churn that has gone on within Iran since the deal was signed is no closer to its resolution. And it's not where the Obama administration hoped to be at the end of uh, its term. It had hoped that the agreement would be the stepping stone to some broader set of relationships, whether it's common interests in dealing with ISIS or common interests in the Gulf or Um, the building of of greater economic or student ties or whatever, and that hasn't happened. So my hope over the next uh, uh, hour and a quarter or so that we have this discussion is that we'll be able to explore a little bit about what kind of strategy, as Ellen has tried to lay out here, might begin to get us to where the post-deal era was supposed to be, And what the challenges are going to be uh, in that in both the economic and the military and the political realms. Uh, And so we're going to talk up here for a while. And uh, starting at around 10, uh, I will turn to questions uh, from all of you. So begin to to think about what it is you want to go say. So Ellen, let me um, start with you uh, about uh, the report. If you agree, and I don't know necessarily that you do, with the assessment I just offered, um, tell me what you think has been missing in the American and the West's effort to follow up on the the JPOA and why that's been missing. What are the sort of biggest highlights, if you were given five minutes with the next president, where you say you've really got to concentrate on in year one to make this plan work?
2: Thanks, David. Well, first, I guess I, I may disagree a little bit with the assumption that the plan we were supposed to go instantly and immediately from the success of the nuclear negotiations to a transformed relationship. I actually think the negotiators pretty well understood that that wasn't
1: it's going to take a while.
2: It was, it's going to take longer. Okay, yep. it, it, if at all. I agree. Uh, and that the nuclear agreement it was an achievement in and of itself. If we think back to early in the Obama administration, of all the things that he might have stated as goals vis-a-vis Iran, the one that he he really stuck with was preventing Iran from becoming a nuclear power. So the agreement has an uh, has an integrity in and of itself. I think Secretary Kerry, of course, was more forward-leaning than some in saying, let's see, let's test the proposition. Let's see if we can cooperate more on Syria. Let's see uh, if it improves our ability to solve problems together. And there's some small data points to suggest that just these personal relationships that have been established do matter. It does allow us uh, this, this more capacity to solve problems early when there's small tactical problems. But it's indisputably true that on both sides, both in the United States and Iran, there was a a course correction after the nuclear agreement to make sure that the pendulum didn't swing too wildly in one direction. In both countries, in both Iran and the United States, there were clearly constituencies that were very skeptical about the merits of the deal and did not want to see us moving fast to a full normalization of relations. Uh, certainly, in Iran, I mean, I think it's it's a little poignant to me to be meeting on the day after the Namazis were sentenced. Let's hope that there's still a possibility of a, an acceptable outcome, but that there is obviously an undertow in Iran that the if we think of the supreme leader as doling out, uh, you know, segments of power, and after having empowered the foreign ministry and the and President Rouhani to get to the finish line on the deal, there's some requirement, almost a law of physics, that he gives some greater authority to these other constituencies. It's a full year now, and we've seen these other constituencies uh, re-empowered, if you will. But So there's always this mystery about what are Iran's long-term intentions. But in fairness to the Obama administration, I think they took a very realistic approach after the agreement was signed, saying, it's probably not going to happen on our watch that there is a transformation of this relationship. The Iranians aren't ready, and maybe we're not ready. So I think there has been still some skepticism in the US about how far you want to go, in part because there are certainly aspects of Iran's conduct in the region uh, that are inimical to US interests. Um, I also think that you know, on the Iranian side, they still see the United States in largely adversarial terms. My my logic in this paper is that Iran is not a pure adversary of the United States. We should be able to manage the challenge of Iran in a slightly more agile and uh, productive way than we have in past decades. Uh, There will always be adversarial dimensions to it. We've got to make sure that we've covered our security requirements and the security interests of our friends and partners in the region. But I'd like to see us take a little more risk in uh, deepening the channels for engagement, I do think that in international politics, having those personal uh, connections and direct contact is is pretty essential to how one manages international relations. So I'd like to see, I'd like to think of the nuclear agreement as a new factual reality that would allow the next president to think of a decade-long process uh, to begin uh, moving towards normalization. Can normalization of relations be achieved in a decade? We don't know that. We don't know it'll depend in part on the domestic politics of Iran as well as uh, what our own political foreign policy, national security interests uh, determine. But I think it should be a a, a long-term objective of the United States to try to get to a more normal relationship with Iran. Um,
1: Well, thanks. Amir, let me um, Mm -hmm. turn to you because um, Mm -hmm. you actually do business with people in Iran, so you've been sort of right at the forefront. Legal business. Legal business. <laughs> right. Uh, we'll we'll make that point, and we'll try by the end of the end of by ten thirty to make sure that you are still a free man. Okay. <laughs> um, but you uh, can give us a perspective that I think others can't about what the Iranians complain about the most, yeah. which is that they haven't seen. The benefits of the deal now, in some ways, when you look at it statistically, from the growth statistics, it looks like they have their oil uh, sales are up significantly, their oil production is up somewhat, the economy's growing a bit over up 4%. F- four percent four at four and a half percent. We take four. And, yeah. we, we take four it's and a half than percent here. Yeah, we, we take that uh, gladly. Um, so uh, in that sense, they have seen. Some significant improvement, but ordinary Iranians tell you they haven't seen a thing. Right. So, give us first just a sense of how they perceive the benefits, if any, of having entered into the deal.
3: Well, I think uh, the 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 highlight figures are that they have really come back in the energy markets in a way that I think their their Gulf Arab neighbors and um, even the Russians uh, were quite surprised. They went from about 2.6 million barrels a day. They ramped it up. Now they're about 3.6, and they're going to four. And if you see now, the the Russians and even the Saudis who are trying to cut a deal with OPEC um, to cut down limits. Iran says no. We want to get our market share back to what it was before the sanctions came about. And and they they've been quite successful with that. Um, the highlight figure is they have they're experiencing 4.2% growth uh, this year, and that's after a really Ten years of mismanagement under Ahmadi, or sorry, eight years of mismanagement under Ahmadinejad. So, that's that's the that's the good news. The bad news for the for the average Iranian is they haven't really seen any of the benefits of it. Uh, inflation is still high, unemployment still high. Um, the banking channels, uh, you know, this deal was done in, in my view um, for one one of the reasons Iran wanted to do this deal was it wanted to get Europe back into business. Um, that was Iran's traditional. The EU was Iran's largest trading partner. Uh, before sanctions were implemented. Um, that hasn't happened because the Europeans have been very skittish. The European banks have been very skittish. FDI, foreign direct investment from Europe, hasn't come in. And so, Iran has turned completely eastward. And, and that's a new dynamic. That's, that's a new dynamic that will affect Iran's foreign policy, has affected Iran's foreign policy, its economic growth. Um, and they blame um, I think the Europeans and, uh, as well, you know, we have this funny dynamic where Secretary Kerry is going around the world telling everyone, you know, it's op- Iran's open for business, you know, go ahead and do business. And they turn around to him and say, well, why aren't you doing business there? You know, the U- United States is not doing business in Iran, but you want everyone else to do business. What happens if the new administration comes and, and they take a different view and they reimplement sanctions? And then the European banks who've paid, you know, in the hundreds of billions of dollars in fines. Uh, for working with Iran. So this dynamic uh,
1: hasn't really been worked out. Let me ask you a little bit about the primary sanctions in the US. I mean, Secretary Kerry made it pretty clear during the time he was doing uh, the negotiations and thereafter that if it was his brothers, we would begin, over time, not all at once, to relieve some of the primary sanctions as a way of building just the relationship we were discussing. And when you read through Ellen's um, strategy, there's sort of no way for us to get there without, over time, unwinding some of those primary sanctions uh, that the US had. Uh, On the other hand, the Republicans who voted against, and all Republicans did vote against the uh, the JPOA, uh, the only uh, outlier I could see to that is the presidential candidate, Donald Trump, when I went to go interview him uh, for one of our foreign policy interviews, um, he said, you know, he was upset about the deal because American companies weren't selling and and Airbus and others were stepping into our place. And I said, well, sir, you know, the, the primary sanctions enacted uh, and kept in by your party uh, are preventing that. And he looked and he said, how stupid is that? Okay. (laughs) So what are the chances, you think, uh, no matter what happens uh, in three weeks, that you're going to begin to see a change in the political atmosphere here that would enable those primary sanctions to begin to back away?
3: Well, I think um, from the Iranian perspective, you know, they view President Obama and this negotiation as an aberration. They don't think that, uh, whether it's Secretary Clinton or Donald Trump, that uh, they don't really see you know, a, a gold pot at the end of the rainbow. Um, because the, the things that the United States wants Iran to do to lift those primary sanctions, they believe are against Iranian interests and against Iran's security interests in the region. So I think that, that I, I I'm really not hopeful. Um, and a lot of this dynamic also, as as Ellen said, it's personalities. I mean, Zarif and Kerry, I think, talk to each other more than they talk to their wives. Uh, you know, you get another Secretary of State in who doesn't have that dynamic with Zarif. Um, it's and gonna, we don't know how long Zarif will be. Uh, we don't know how long. Iran is going into an election year. It, you know, in six months they're going to have they're going to have their presidential election. Seven months. So it, it, it's going to require a, a, a wholesale reevaluation, uh, I think, here in the United States as to what do we want from Iran uh, to be able to, to lift these sanctions that the Iranians can tolerate. And the Iranians have to take a hard look at themselves to say, you know, how are we going to have to change our conduct to get the Americans to, to lift those sanctions? It's the same, same framework as the JCPOA, but take it into uh, a different direction.
1: So, Mike, um, on page 15 of uh, Ellen's report, there's this fascinating chart uh, called the Gulf Military balance, And um, it looks at um, the size of the forces, uh, Army, Navy, Air Force, paramilitary, other forces, uh, strategic missile forces, National Guard, and all that. But the number that jumped out at me was when you got to defense expenditures in 2015. So the Iranians come in, in for 2014 at just under 16 uh, billion. And the Saudis come in at just about 82 billion. And when you look at the rest of the Gulf Cooperation Council states, um, they add up to another 30 or thereabouts. So. The Iranians are outspent versus their Sunni neighbors uh, by roughly five to one, four to one to five to one. So what are they so worried about?
4: (laughs) Well, first I'd make the point that from the Iranian perspective, I think they view their, we have to take into account that Iran does have legitimate defense needs and defense interests, and they are convinced that their neighbors are out to harm the regime, certainly. Um, But another point worth making is if you're looking at it in absolute dollar terms, I mean the dollar terms are striking, the difference is huge, but it's what the Iranians invest in and how they invest and how the the areas in their military that they choose to prioritize. They invest pretty wisely. Not to say that the Gulfies don't, the Gulfies have different security needs so they invest the the Arab Gulf countries in, in different areas like ballistic missile defense, that's expensive. I mean, if you're getting a hold of Patriot batteries and that and other, and other equipment, that's, that's high dollar cost. And
1: we keep dropping by and we with do. sales brochures. And, and, you know, yeah, that's, right. It
4: yeah. certainly <laughs> benefits the U.S., benefits the EU. Um, but it's worth noting that the Iranians invest in areas that give a re- good return for the investment that are very low cost. The perfect example I like to give when I'm talking about this is naval mines. Most of the mines in Iran's naval forces and their inventory are, are early 20th century technology. They're built on a Russian model that was developed prior to the Russian Revolution. So it's, it's very old technology, most of them. They have some advanced ones as well. But they pose a problem for US naval forces, for the Gulf naval forces. They're very hard to deal with. And to counter that technology, you know, we have to invest in very expensive mine clearing equipment. So the, the dollar cost terms are a tough way to look at. It. But I think it is worth pointing out that they do have legitimate defense needs. Um, they are surrounded by neighbors that they don't necessarily have Iran's best interests at heart. And you know we have to bear that in mind when looking at, at the military side of things. I mean, I was looking at the military and trying to determine on, these, on the military issues, have there been any changes since the JCPOA? And there really haven't. You look at ballistic missiles. Um, yeah. Iran doesn't believe that ballistic missiles are covered under um, yeah. resolution 13, 1322.
1: Um, it's simply, we, the resolution simply uh, uh, urges them to show restraint versus the previous resolution also ignored, which actually barred them.
4: Yes. Yeah. And it said, if I, if I recall, it's nuclear-capable ballistic missiles, right. and they say our missiles aren't nuclear-capable, and that's sort of some of the discrepancies in that, in that regard as well. But they continue to test and develop their ballistic missile technology. They've made a lot of progress. Um, they just recently, back in the late spring, had a launch of a uh, short-range ballistic missile based on the FATA-110, which is very accurate. One of the things they're working on is accuracy of the ballistic missiles.
1: Um, How active is their cooperation with North Korea these days in that area? For a while, exceeded. they They've exceeded. That's
4: interesting. They, they've exceeded North Korea. They've gone beyond North Korea. North mm-hmm. Korea got their ballistic missile, got the Iranian ballistic missile program started back in the 80s, mm-hmm. along with Libya. But Iran has far surpassed, there is cooperation. I mean, according to open source press accounts, mm-hmm. there's cooperation between North Korea and Iran, but, mm-hmm. but Iranians really have excelled the North Koreans in many ways in terms of the ballistic missile program. There's a problem with non-state actors. Now, there's the long-standing links with Lebanese Hezbollah, with Qatar Hezbollah in Iraq, with Abu Haq, with Ansarullah in Lebanon these are all problematic from the U.S. perspective. They're not necessarily, in most cases, attra- uh, attacking U.S. interests directly. There is one notable exception, and I'm sure you guys are aware of the, the incident in Yemen, which I think got the U.S. Navy particularly concerned, but, but there, there aren't, Iran's support for these groups is destabilizing, I think, from the U.S. perspective, because it exacerbates a lot of the sectarian tensions in the region, particularly in Iraq and Syria.
1: Let me ask you just a moment and then I want to get back to Ellen with a similar question about what deal you think the IRGC ended up striking with the Supreme Leader after the nuclear agreement was reached July a year ago. There is a sense here, and it may simply have worked into urban myth, that the Supreme Leader's essential. Deal was okay. We have taken away the nuclear program for the next 10 to 15 years. You'll get it back, but you're not going to get it back for a while. And it may not be in the working lifetimes of many of the senior leadership of the IRGC. Uh, but the compensation for that is you now have a freer hand than you did when the negotiations were going on when we didn't want you messing up the negotiations by acting out within the region. Do you think that was in fact where the IRGC is or do you see their activity as basically just a continuation of what they were doing?
4: I see it as more of a continuation. and I actually think the compensation was literally compensation. I get the sense that resourcing the IRGC continued actually at an accelerated pace <clears throat> post-JCPOA. Mm-hmm. But I don't see a change necessarily in the behavior, if you're looking regionally, like Quds Force right. activities, for instance, in Iraq or Syria, I don't see, those were all priorities that the regime had invested in. And I don't see the behavior of the regime in those areas necessarily changing. So I don't think there was a, a quid pro quo in the, in, the, in the regional sense of how, how the IRGC was, was acting, either in the Gulf, We know there have been incidents in the Gulf, but those incidents have been happening all along, prior to JCPOA as well as post-JCPOA. So
1: So Ellen, in your report, you talk about how one makes the shift from containment to deterrence here. Um, Talk a little bit about what the elements of that deterrence you think would be.
2: Well, I think there'll be some continuity in how the United States positions itself and envisions the, the specific military and security threats Posed by Iran, but I do think that we have to um, uh, look. I think containment. Uh, uh, people have different definitions of what containment means. Do we mean literally physically blocking the Iranians from mobility in the Gulf? I think that's <coughs> not very practical. But deterrence is a psychological concept and a political concept. It's not just about military deployments. So whether. There are ways to signal to the Iranians what the consequences to them of certain actions would be that makes them think twice. Now, this is the long story of US-Iran relations of whether, you know, in the end we haven't had a direct US-Iran confrontation. We've had sort of low-intensity dust-ups periodically that do not turn into sustained uh, conflict. But nor have we persuaded the Iranians to take a different approach to their own national security. So what I take from uh, Mike's discussion is that think about how subjective and how not static countries' notions of whether they feel secure or insecure are. Okay, This is constantly evolving. And that we think of Iran as a country that sometimes presents itself as overconfident, that it can shape the fortunes of other countries, that it can manipulate uh, the political factors in other countries, yet in other ways is a profoundly insecure country. The fact that it doesn't have any allies, that it doesn't have really friendly, trusting relationships with any of the countries with which it shares borders. So we have to sort of hold these two concepts in our heads at the same time. And I think for the U.S., the deterrence piece is, you know, Iran's great strategic goal is to get the United States out of the region. That's not going to happen. Okay, so, on the assumption that the us. is there for the indefinite future, that we have our own agenda, if you will, uh, for both American interests and the interests of our partners and friends, is our presence some kind of constant warning to Iran about what uh, kind of you know actions we would consider acceptable and unacceptable? So we're a little bit locked in a in a dynamic that still has friction in it but I'd like to believe can be refined a bit more so that there's some red line. Red lines is a dangerous concept sometimes, but that we can communicate to the Iranians um, and and be clearer about a a smaller list of activities that would be truly unacceptable to the United States, but also acknowledge that Iran is a a regional power, that Iran has and, and try to draw from the Iranians their own desire to see the region more stable? Our, how do we find some common ground but make clear to the Iranians that, they're, that we will deter them from doing you know, significant aggressive action towards us or towards any of our regional partners?
1: And once Secretary Kerry has um, left office and perhaps when uh, Javad Zarif does as well, what do you see as the replacement communication link there? Because if you think about the seizure of the U.S. sailors who went off into uh, Iranian waters, um, much as you know, that turned into a, a political and a, at one point even actually a campaign ad, the fact of the matter is it got resolved pretty quickly mm-hmm. the way these things happened. And if you try to spin forward to a year when, you know, you might not have Kerry and Zarif there to have that conversation, I'm not entirely sure how you keep a small incident like that right. from blowing up.
2: Well, so for sure, I would hope that the minute we know who Secretary Kerry's successor is, that Secretary Kerry facilitate a a personal contact and that's kind of normal diplomatic behavior with many countries in the case of Iran, it has a little more consequence to it. So first would be to make sure that there's the baton is, is handed quickly and that there is direct contact. Should there, the outcome of the Iranian elections mean that there's also turnover in their foreign ministry, uh, then I think we'll have to you know respond in in due course and and hope that there are uh, relationships but then we see perhaps some continuity in the Department of energy relationships that have been established we we have to if we look at the the network of contacts that worked for several years together in very intense circumstances one hopes that you know people who are the technical experts in the bureaucracy you know move up the ladder a little bit they know who their Iranian counterparts are but I would encourage the next administration to really pay attention to that, to really give some time and effort and and praise and encouragement and support for people in the national security agencies knowing who their Iranian counterparts are, and as appropriate, developing relationships with them.
1: Amir, in uh, there's a part of Ellen's uh, report that pulls out some interesting quotes from Kerry and Ash Carter and the Supreme Leader and Rouhani. I want to read you one from Rouhani because in some ways it's his campaign slogan for the elections in the spring. The nuclear deal is an opportunity that we should use to develop the country, improve the welfare of the nation, and create stability and security in the region. Sounds bland and politician-like. But what's interesting is he ties the direct link between the nuclear deal and the development of the country, improvement of the welfare. So he's got to get re-elected on um, a platform that basically says, I said I would get you this deal, and I said I would get you sanctions lifted, and I've done it. So the next term is all about reaping the benefits of what I've accomplished for you. Um, Based on the kind of contacts you have in Iran these days, is that argument likely to fly? I think it depends what the alternative is. Uh, I,
3: I think the, the alternative, uh, I, the alternative to Rouhani isn't clear yet because the candidate list hasn't come out yet. Um, but I think um, from the people's perspective, they're very disappointed. They don't necessarily blame him as much as they blame the United States. And it's interesting how Rouhani and 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 the administration in Iran have said, you know, we're doing our best, but we have this, you know superpower you know above us that's that's not allowing us to reap the benefits and I think that fortunately or unfortunately depending on where you stand that's working There was a a poll done um, I think a University of Maryland poll uh, with 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 a Canadian uh, University and for the first time I was shocked the numbers the 74 the percent of the Iranian population have a negative view of the United States that's never been that's hmm. never been the case. It's always been uh, you know, the other way around, and I think that's because um, they blame the U.S. for, in, in some ways, not reaping the benefits of, of the of the nuclear deal. So I, I think um, I think that dynamic is, is to be worked out. I just want to go back to something that Ellen said, which I which I think uh, is is quite important. I don't think here in the United States we really appreciate what's happened in the region the last, since the invasion of Iraq. I think Iran now, it, we view them as a, as a regional power. They view themselves as a great power.
5: Hmm.
3: As a great power with a sphere of influence now that extends from Tehran to southern Lebanon. And they're about consolidating their great power status. And what does the great power do well, it, it, eventually, it wants to challenge the status quo power. So, but they know what I think the U.S. red lines are. They're they're quite aware. And and, and you know, the U.S. red lines are in the Persian Gulf and energy security, you know, for the world. Beyond that, you know, and what the it,
1: security of Israel and, and Saudi the security Arabia. of
3: Israel and, and Saudi Arabia, uh, of course. But but when it comes to Saudi Arabia, I think they view it as a credibility issue. When it comes to Israel, they view it as, as a red line issue. And and they're they're they're. They're careful not to to get close to those red lines, but they're also when they see, from their perspective, when they see the Saudis, the Gulf countries pour a lot of money into Syria to destabilize the Assad regime, they're going to respond. You know, they'll respond in Yemen. They'll respond in other ways. You know, they're not going to they're not going to be a stagnant power. They are very much a a, a reactive power.
1: Mike, as a reporter, I spend as much time trying to listen to the dogs that don't bark as the ones that do, since plenty come by and bark in my email every day. Um, And in the post-deal period, the most remarkable comments I have heard or silences I have heard have been from the Israelis. So you go to visit Israel, what you hear from Uh, the uh, Israeli Defense Force Generals is, we actually haven't been in this good a position with the Iranians in some time. The nuclear thing is off the table. Our Prime Minister is not busy threatening every once in a while to go redecorate Natanz. Um, There are certainly things we have to be careful of, particularly the import of missiles uh, into Lebanon and so forth. But fundamentally, we're in a better place than two years ago we thought we would be in. Now, they can't say it too loudly lest the Prime Minister's office come down on them, but that's pretty much
4: what I hear. I don't know if it's also what you hear. No, Uh, I would agree. I think from the Israeli perspective, I don't think they went into it as optimistically as we did, but I think they've seen the benefits in terms of, by bringing Iran into the fold, perhaps, it's kind of, Mo- might moderate their behavior over the long term. It certainly kept things quiet in the north with Hezbollah, although right. a lot of that has to do with Syria as well and Hezbollah being distracted, but it's been remarkably quiet on, on the Golan.
1: Okay, so let me take you out ten years, eight years. So sure. you look in the in the JPOA and, you know, they can continue to do some work on advanced centrifuge technology starting around eight year eight through ten, They can begin to do more testing and so forth. And then at year 15, basically, the restraints are off. So as we get out to year 8, 9, 10, and I'm assuming the Iranians are going to do everything they can do legally right up to the line, and it's entirely conceivable that a different regime may decide to go test the limits and do more. How do the Israelis respond, and how do they make use of these years between now and then? I think
4: how they, they're certainly gonna be tracking the progress that we make. I mean, they're gonna be looking for us to take the lead on that. And the extent of how well we manage the Iran relationship is gonna affect how they how they plan and, and deal with contingencies for dealing with that relationship. They're probably gonna to continue to invest prudently in things like ballistic missile defense. Certainly, as I mentioned, the Iranians are making a lot of progress in that area. Um, so that's gonna be a priority for them. I mean, they're gonna hedge their bets as as, as the timeline extends, but you know, I think they're going to be looking for us to take the lead and see how much progress we make.
2: And again, I mean, I do think that over that decade, if Iran feels that its status in the world, in the region, relationship with the Western powers has moved in a positive direction, one hopes that that would affect how their internal deliberations over you know what are our national security requirements now. I mean, I think there is still a debate among Iran watchers. Of whether Iran has a that whether there's still an inevitability to them seeing uh, being a nuclear power as a a necessary ingredient of their great of their status in the world, or whether they could that that thinking could shift away from nuclear weapons over time.
4: You know, I think the real question on the Israeli <laughs> side, I mean on the Iranian side is how much can they jettison Israel from, from the sort of the ideological underpinnings of the Islamic no, Republic? Is it gonna no. be that focus that it's yeah. always been or is it can somehow I mean it's it's doubtful it's ever gonna be removed as as a as a as an ideological constraint, but it's you know, it could be sort of just a matter of pure rhetoric and push to the and back, then, or it
2: could be... And, and along the same lines, and I'd welcome Amir's thoughts on this, you know, the, some people think the revolution is mellowing anyway. If you look at the demographics of Iran, you look at... Certainly some of the aging. Younger, if it's, it's aging, aging. Yeah. it's aging, yeah. and then it replenishes itself with younger generation true believers. But still, um, you know, revolutions do get tired over time. And some people think, uh, you know, Robin Wright had written a nice piece comparing Cuba and Iran of when you see that a fatigue has set in and that some of the revolutionary ideology doesn't make sense anymore? Um, and how do you adapt to the outside world?
1: Amir, do you so. see that? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I don't see, I mean, I think the, the Israel, I've always believed this, the Israel talk is a lot of rhetoric. Um, you know, Colin Powell's emails say, you know, Israel is a nuclear power with 200 nuclear weapons or whatever it is pointed at Iran. Iran knows that Israel is a nuclear power. Uh, I think that Iran's support for Hezbollah for them very much is a a deterrence issue Mm -hmm. um, to make sure that if Israel were to do something provocative, that they have leverage there, Um, Iran right now is at war with with, um, Daesh or ISIS and that's their, that's the national
1: security, that's on their border, that's what they really care about. Um, And and that's uh, their... If you would think would give us some natural affinity and that was sort of the, that was gamble that yeah. that would be the first thing. Even if we didn't have this much broader relationship that mm-hmm. Ellen said nobody thought we would get immediately, I agree with that. There was discussion in Vienna, in Lausanne, in those last, those last runs of negotiation, that ISIS would be the interesting test yeah. case of cooperation. It hasn't happened.
3: Yeah, I, I think the Supreme Leader addressed this maybe uh, for right before the nuclear deal was signed you know, he, 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 gives, he gave a speech and said you know we'll see how it goes with the nuclear deal and you know we can then discuss other things i think their view is the nuclear deal they haven't reaped the benefits of that and and now he's he has said repeatedly you know how can we trust the united states on on isis when and cooperating with them on other regional issues when we're not getting the benefit of the nuclear deal
1: mike i wanted to ask you about an alternative to. Um nuclear for the Iranians. So they announced with great fanfare, soon after the Olympic Games, Stuxnet attacks the US did, the creation of um, a cyber court. They put together a pretty subtle but very clear message in the attacks on uh, Saudi Aramco and Raskas. Uh There are Iranian hackers who have been indicted here for the actions against the U.S. banks and uh, not terribly successful um, uh, manipulation of a small dam in Rhine, New York. I used to play Which on... Which was it.
4: mistaken for another dam, by it the way. It was mistaken, and
1: I used to play on that dam as a 10-year-old, and I can <laughs> I can tell you there's not enough water in it to, to flood a basement. Uh, but, but it was a nice try, whatever. Um, and uh, so, And and I don't think they've improved the locks since I was a 10 year old either. Uh, But um, the development of the cyber capability has given them something that nuclear never could because they can use cyber right away in various subtle ways. They can dial it up and dial it down. So we saw that happen for a few years. We've seen a little bit of an abatement of that in the past 12 months. Tell us how they're thinking about cyber in the in their broader well, cyber, strategy. Cyber.
4: This goes back to that thing I was saying about investing in in areas that give you good return for investment. Cyber is perfect for the Iranians. It's um, cheap. It, it's cheap. They have a very well-educated population, um, particularly in technical sciences, that would help if you're trying to create a core of, of cyber personnel. Um, there is, of course, a point you brought up about. Stuxnet, I mean they, they feel that they've been on the receiving end of offensive uses of cyber as well. They have been. So it, and, <laughs> and it makes sense for them to invest both in terms of defensive cyber and offensive cyber. Um, cyber, I don't see it as necessarily a replacement for a nuclear deterrent. I just don't think it, it's, I, it's hard to envisage a scenario I think where you, you could see cyber deterring for instance say the say the deal fell apart, say Israel decided it was gonna launch strikes on Iran. It's hard to see how cyber would prevent Israel from doing that or, how does, or if there was an incident in the Gulf and the conflict escalated between the US and Iran. I, I don't see cyber as kind of an, as an alternative necessarily to nuclear deterrent. I see it as very complementary to use of proxies. Um, it does fit with, with Iran's broader goals in the region, a plausible deniability. The attribution issue is always talked about for cyber. It's very hard to prove if a cyber attack occurs that it was a a Mm state-based effort. And even if you can prove it, it's hard to kind of prove it in the eyes of the public. Um, It's great for signaling, and we saw that with the banks. We saw sort of a quid pro quo going on with attacks on Iran's nuclear program, them responding by attacking.
1: And they've seen now the revelation of a second U.S. program that was never put into place called Nitro-Zeus that uh, we describe in uh, the documentary Zero Days that would basically been, had there been a full conflict with Iran, a way to shut down their power grids, or basically shut down the country
4: with uh, cyber related attacks. How do they think about their own vulnerability? Oh, they certainly, I mean, they're, they view it as much as a vulnerability issue as a use for kind of using offensively. I mm-hmm. mean, they've invested heavily in cyber passive defense. They created a cyber, Supreme National Cyber Council is Mm -hmm. kind of the equivalent of Supreme National Security Council that works purely on cyber issues. And most of the focus of that council appears to be defensive. So they're talking about hardening Iranian networks. Um, They also view, one difference with the US is they view it as more within the realm, and this is true of other potential US adversaries as well. You're looking at China, you're looking at Russia. Iran tends to view cyber as, as within the domain of, broad domain of information warfare. So for them, defense of cyber includes controlling the information flow in and out of Iran, especially into Iran because they're worried about their perceived adversaries using cyber to destabilize the regime. So there's an information component to it as well.
1: Ellen, a last question for you before we go out to the audience. So early in the Iran negotiations, there was a big discussion. Do you just focus on nuclear for this or do you try for the grand bargain? And the grand bargain would be everything from nuclear, to the diplomatic relationship, to the economic relationship, everything we've been discussing here uh, today. And the decision the administration made was if you bite off something that big, you'll never get there. You'll, and and not only that, you won't address, as you pointed out at the beginning, the number one issue the president felt he had to, which right. was to stop them from obtaining a weapon. So. Um, Are we back at the position now where we can begin to have, once we're past this presidential election, we can resume discussion of a grand bargain? Is it even a wise thing to do? The elements of a grand bargain are all within your strategy, but you don't call it a grand bargain.
2: I would say I package it perhaps more modestly that it's going to be incremental, that there's not a moment where all the pieces fit together perfectly and set out timetables and objectives. I think that we, um, both we and Iran, kind of miscommunicated at various times about what we meant by grand bargain. And I guess I've come to the conclusion that in the end, it wasn't uh, very promising because it couldn't fundamentally address some of the uh, ideological gaps. So I do think that we're managing a relationship that has, uh, I mean, I think the best case scenario is managing a relationship that is not among natural allies, that is not a deep, trusted relationship, but is seeing Iran as a, as perhaps a rising power, or at least a, a one of the largest regional powers. It is, after all, we haven't spent a lot of time looking at the Iran-Saudi dynamic, but Iran is right up there as one of the most important countries in the region, and that's uh, not going to change. So I guess I see us managing Iran's uh, trajectory in ways that uh, do not assume that there is a a perfect package where there's mutual agreement on the full suite of topics. I think we're always going to be triaging between where are there areas of cooperation and where are there enduring differences. I I don't see that dilemma uh, being solved in the next decade. And so I think the grand bargain talk turned out to be, in my view, um, not as productive as alternatives to it.
1: Okay, so we've got about a half an hour left and uh, so I'm going to uh, call on some folks here for questions. Please uh, tell us who you are um, and please actually formulate a question out of your questions. And Barbara, we'll start with you. Microphone's coming right there.
2: Thanks, uh, Barbara Slavin. I uh, direct the Future of Iran initiative here, and I want to congratulate <laughs> Ellen and everyone else uh, for the report. I think it's excellent. Um, one thing you didn't touch on was Russia, and there's been a lot of alarmism lately. The Russia is, you know, the new power in the region. It's, uh, it, it, it launched uh, flights uh, against Syria from bases in Iran. Uh, I'd be interested in all three of you actually addressing to what extent you think there is now this new affinity between uh, Iran and Russia, which in the past has been uh, an adversary of Iran's? Thanks.
1: Mike, let's start with you on that. And maybe along the way you can tell us why you think the Iranians made the decision to allow the Russians to launch from (laughs) Iranian territory and
4: why it stopped. So quickly. Well, it's, I think they made the decision because the Russians kind of pressured them along those lines. I think there's a quid pro quo going on between the Russians and the Iranians right now. And I think the Russians, the Iranians see a lot of benefit to to furthering that relationship. But I, it was a sensitive issue. It's not something that the regime wanted to advertise, that there were Russian troops on the ground conducting operations uh, from Iran into Syria. It was something that was, that was because there's actually a constant constitutional prohibition against foreign forces being based on Iranian territory, any foreign force. That's so why they said
1: they weren't based, they so we were just visiting. It was just visiting, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But right. it
4: was, then it was talking <laughs> about, you know, them continuing that presence, but it was, it's a very sensitive topic. Um, I think, you know, is keeping with me addressing the military issues, I think there's a lot of potential there for collaboration, but there are a lot of problems as well. I mean, the, the two sides remain very suspicious of each other. Um, we have some, some analysts at CNA who work on the Russia side, and they go back and forth to Moscow. And, and they have a lot more access, obviously, than I do to Iran. But they talk to their Russian counterparts, and they say, well, you know, where do you see this relationship going? And the Russians are viewing it totally from commercial terms. So like we can sell them this. We can sell them. We think it's like a $15 billion defense market over the next few years, especially once the provisions of the JCPOA are actually lifted in 2020. The I think from the Iranian perspective, they're a little more wary. They're kind of coming into it saying, what can we get out of this relationship? We don't really trust the Russians, but they have technology that we need. So there's been a lot of talk about you know, munitions that the Iranians could acquire from the Russians, which could have a pretty big impact on the balance of power, in, for instance, in the Persian Gulf. I mean, there's been talk about acquiring advanced Russian anti-ship cruise missiles, the Yakant, the Bastion system. Kilo subs, SU-30 fighters. I mean, it's the pretty high-end stuff if the Iranians have the cash to pay for it. But the Russians, it's got to be cash up front. Yeah.
3: I think, that, I think that's right. I mean, I think, look, there, Iran has lost more territory to Russia in the last 200 years than any other country. Uh, there's no love loss between the average Iranian and, and the Russians. I mean, the cultures don't really mix well on the ground. Uh, so uh, that's the first point. However, um, they fill in the gap. The Russians fill in the gap, the, the Iranians see that you know, the Americans are arming the Gulf East to the teeth and you know, the Israelis have their own uh, defense infrastructure. So they need to bring in Russian technology, you know, Russian, you know, the S-300, uh, you know, Russian missile technology and in some, some ways nuclear peaceful nuclear technology. Um, I think they view it as transactional. I think Iran, as I said, you have to go into the Iranian mindset. They view themselves as a great power. They're not dependent on another great power for their security. So they view their relationships with, with other great powers, China and Russia, as purely transactional. I don't think they wanted them to get get the Russians involved in Syria. Mm-hmm. I think they saw the tide turning in Syria, and they said, well, we need to get the Russians in, in case the Americans you know decide to come in with force and to, to, to balance that out. But the real discussion is going to come in, in the diplomatic negotiations on, Syri- on Syria. You know, how are the Russians and the Iranians going to divide that pie, and that's that's going to be that'll be a tough negotiation.
2: I think during the uh, nuclear talks, though, we did see the Russians as defending the Iranian position. I mean, so that there's there's been an alliance of convenience on a number of issues between Russia and Iran in spite of the deep historic wariness. I imagine that the Iranians are enjoying a little bit playing Washington and Moscow off each other. Mm-hmm. That it gives them some leverage vis-a-vis the United States right now. It doesn't mean that that's a a, you know a permanent solution for them um, and in the end we know that at least parts of the Iranian elite would very much prefer to have a deeper relationship with the United States in which case they'd need Russia less is my guess
1: it's hard to imagine now given the current atmosphere with Russia they were actually pretty helpful in the Iran negotiations i had yes. more than a few american negotiators who told me that they were sort of happier when the Russians were in the room than, say, when the French were in the room, uh, <laughs> in the course of the negotiations? And you know, it it is it tells you how much things have changed in this time, sir.
5: Thank you. Trita Parsi from NIAC. Uh, excellent discussion. Thank you so much for this. This is really much needed here. Uh, I haven't read the report yet, but with Ellen as the lead author, I'm sure it's absolutely excellent. I think David started off really well saying that within the four corners of the deal, uh, it has really worked out well. But outside of it, there's still question marks. And clearly, there was at least uh, a hope that things would change, that the Iran's conduct in the region would change. I'd like to make a comment and a question. I think one aspect in which there has been a change in conduct, or at least in posture, uh, perhaps not so much post-Deal, but post rouhani is the posture on Israel. You do not have the same rhetoric against Israel now as existed during Ahmadinejad years. And it's a dramatic shift that I think should go noted. Um, But when it comes to the change in conduct, I would like to see, imagine if this panel was now in Tehran and not in Washington. And there would be the still same type of uh, expectation that perhaps after the deal, there would be a shift in relationship. Um, and they would be looking at changes in conduct of the United States in the region. If you were putting yourself in the shoes of Tehran right now, how would you assess how the US's conduct in the region has changed, post-JCPOA, in ways that potentially could make it helpful for the Iranians to move in a similar direction?
1: No. Uh
2: Well, I'm not sure there's a too many examples to give, but I do think the administration is trying to use a a vocabulary with our partners in the region that isn't um, to exacerbate tensions between the Arab side of the Gulf and the Iranians, but rather to aim high and say, look, in the long run, we're trying to help all of the parties in the region to find a, a greater, Formula for stability, and, and it's not resonating well when sectarianism is inflaming uh, the, the tensions. Um, and I think all parties could do more to tone that that part down. But um, I, so I, I'm not sure I have a good answer. I do think that the Iranians would see us as um the big procurement deals with the gulf arabs i think make them feel that the us has not been sincere in uh trying to you know factor in their legitimate defense needs as well but i think that we we do want the gulf the gcc countries to be more defense capable um, because we don't want to be the you know the combatant. Every time there's a, a, a serious problem, we want to play a, a deterring role, but not necessi- We would like to see greater regional capacity to solve regional problems. So, um, uh, so I would say there's a slight evolution of how we think uh, conceptually about the American role in the region, and I, I hope the Iranians would hear something useful in that uh, conversation. But uh, there may not, you know maybe that's not enough of what they want to hear.
1: Gentleman on the aisle there. Uh, I'm Harlan Owen with the
6: Atlantic Council. Uh, I want to follow on David's uh, point about a grand bargain, Ellen, and congratulations on the report. Um, With an opportunity and a potential obstacle here, Uh, as you know, for nearly a decade, we had a two pillar policy in the Gulf with Saudi Arabia and the Shah's Iran. Uh, What's happening in Saudi Arabia, which has not been discussed, is very interesting with the 2030 project and what the Deputy Crown Prince may or may not be doing. So is there a way possibly of leveraging on instability and the Islamic State in a more dramatic sense as a way of trying to get some kind of reconciliation going through Riyadh and even Moscow to get to Tehran? I'd like to get your thinking on that. And second, in terms of an obstacle, as you know, One of the Department of Defense's top four priorities, which it says explicitly is to be prepared to to turn, if necessary, defeat Iran if a war should come. How do we negotiate with Iran when the Pentagon is actively planning
4: to defeat it in a war? Mike, you want to start with that one? (laughs) That's a hard question. Um, You know, the U.S. military has contingency plans. I mean, that's what it does. It prepares contingency plans for all sorts of issues. So I don't think... It's to say that the US has contingency plans for deter Iranian aggression isn't quite the same thing. And I, it's probably lo- perhaps lost on the Iranians, but it isn't the same thing as saying, we're planning on going to war with Iran. We right. plan for contingencies right. is what the US military does. That's so. Well, that's not exactly what says. When you take a look
6: at the, four plus one, the is
4: now actively planning material the, over the to be to deter the SAP, any well, one of those four. In, here, I'll say. And I don't speak for CNA or the military on this. I know you as a former CNA could appreciate that. But I will say that US, Iranian military capabilities do pose a threat to US forces in the region. This is clear in the Gulf. I mean, we've seen these incidents where there's real potential for sparking an armed conflict in terms of these naval encounters that are going on in the Gulf. And the US has to be prepared to deal with those contingencies. So, and the Iranians too. The Iranians are investing in capabilities to counter the US, to counter high-end military. So we say they're focused on Daesh and ISIL, but the reality is they're also investing in their ballistic missile program, which is a high-end deterrent. They're also investing in naval capabilities that are designed to deal with high-end navies. They're investing in anti-ship cruise missiles. So these, these are things that are geared on the Iranian side to dealing with presumably the US because I don't think there's any other high-end military that they really view as a major challenge. So I, I, I would say that's, that would be my response yeah. to that.
3: I think, uh, to follow up on your question, I think this is, this is uh, Iranians really have a tough time understanding the, the US-Saudi relationship. Um, uh, because from their perspective, you know, Saudi Arabia, you know, despite some of their common interests, in the United States, represents much more of a strategic challenge to the United States, given the type of Islam that they've been exporting for the last you know, 40, 50 years. Um, and that's the, the, the type of Islam that they're, Iran is at war with right now, vis-a-vis uh, Daesh and, 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 in Iraq. And you hear this a lot in Iran, You know, the US created Daesh, and, and the Americans sort of scratched their heads. I think to flesh that argument out is, is you have allowed um, Gulf states, To fund, um, whether it's directly or indirectly, you know, these Salafi Sunni groups in Syria, in Iraq, and now we have a mess on our hands. And because they are your client states, they are your partners, if you will. You know, we hold you responsible, and and that's that's the that's the Iran's tenor when it comes to Saudi Arabia. And they're not going to take it anymore from the Saudis. They are. I mean, they're they're very much. so when you mention Israel, I think that's low on the list right now. It's 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 wherever there is a, a flashpoint now, you know, the Saudis poured money into Syria. They want to take Syria out of the Iranian orbit. They got Yemen. So you're going you, you'll see that you'll see that play out more. Very Can good. Can I just
2: uh, sure. pick up a little bit on your uh, why I think Islamic State is not the ideal topic for U.S. Iranian cooperation? I think it's just too tricky. I think that in the in general, the principle sounds right, that you know defeating Daesh is good for regional stability, then everybody can sort of calm down and have more appropriate political dialogue. But it's it's very fraught uh, because of Iran's support for Shia militia, because it doesn't build trust with the Sunnis, to have Iran on board as one of the anti-Islamic state. Uh, active military forces. They can politically support the goal of defeating the Islamic State, but I think it's, it's pretty complicated, particularly for Iraqi Sunnis and for Syrian Sunnis, to have Iran playing a role in that campaign. So I think we have to somehow, you know, hope that Iran would politically support the objective, but um, not be part of the battle, in my view. I think
4: another issue, too, if I could just add to that, is if you're gonna cooperate on ISIL militarily, it would involve some form of mill to mill coordination, and that's particularly problematic in the Iranian case.
1: Sir. Microphone count right here in front.
4: Thank you. Uh, Alan, congratulations on the report. Uh, you definitely deserve a lot of credit for tackling a really important subject and a very complex one. Um, y- you mentioned that perhaps one of the ultimate objectives of Iran is to, and it's not going to happen overnight or ever, to replace the United States as the, uh, you know, the regional hegemon, the regional COP, the regional power uh, in the Middle East. Uh, if that's the case, then is it at all possible that what we're selling, they're simply not interested in buying? What does Iran really want from the United States ultimately, in your opinion?
2: So it is true. I, I'm not sure that the, Iran has the ambition to replace the United States. I think Iran believes that the region should govern itself without outside powers, and that in the best of worlds, there'd be no outside powers in the region, of which the United States is the largest. But I think there's lots of steps along a continuum that Iran would find satisfactory in terms of a, a, an improved relationship with the United States. I think they do want, I mean, at some level, and it's hard to just say one Iran, because we know how uh, complex their, their political uh, system is uh, these days. But I think they want you know, the seal of approval of doing business. I, I, I see in the short run Iran is motivated by economic self-interest. They're not willing to put aside the ideology yet. That would happen at a later stage of a process. So I, I do think that they've wanted for many years um, some d- level of acceptance of the United States that includes uh, the ability to have economic transactions and to do business. I think they be- their ambition for their own economy would you know, want them to have the best technology and the, the highest quality goods. And I think that trading with the Russians and with Asian countries, they know is, is second best for, in terms of their own aspirations. So I don't see them as, uh, and this hegemon discussion is always a little squirrelly because we don't really know do they have a, a, an achievable doctrine to really dominate the region. I think they want to be respected as a, as a unique power in the region. They will clearly have their ally, allies and clients in the region, but I don't see them as having the ambition of replacing the United States.
1: As a tactical question, when you talk to young Iranians, mm-hmm. they all want to be able to come to American universities, get mm-hmm. visas, participate in American life. Obviously, something that's viewed with considerable suspicion back home, um, and this is part of the divide, you know, that you see within Iranian society. Um, what do you think the chances are that we would actually get to that point, as sort of a, in the way station of uh, of Building a more solid relationship mean of of, 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 those of, of, of yeah doing the cultural doing the I mean think oh. about how many of the people who were negotiating the nuclear right. deal had studied in the United States. Well, first of all, well, we're realm.
2: already doing it. Um, you know, I think there yeah. are a lot of cultural channels that are open. Mm-hmm. In my report, I tried to let's not have that as a sort of little charming curiosity on the side, but let's try to Make bring it a into piece. a more normal, uh, transactional way of doing business. But I, I look, I think that it would be useful to check, because the same thing is happening on the Arab side, of whether the generations where all of your cabinet officers had Western degrees, there is now more capacity for people to get degrees at home. So whether we're seeing, in terms of ratios and proportions, are we seeing fewer Iranians that are Western educated? But Iran also has serious competitive universities. so we don't want to lose that some portion of the population would have had the experience of, you know, being exposed socially, culturally to the United States. So I, you know, I more the merrier as far as I'm concerned on that. Okay. Jefferson.
1: So there was a. I'm sorry. Ambassador, Ambassador Jefferson. Jefferson. Oh, I didn't see you there, Jim. Yes, please. Mike's okay. coming to you. Just stand up. They'll bring one
7: right around. Uh, Part of my thunder may have been stolen by the last question, but uh, I think the focus on replacing the United States might be going a bit too far, but I would take Mr. Uh, Hanjani's comment uh, during the uh, discussion earlier uh, as about where a lot of people certainly in the region think Iran is, that Iran sees itself not as a major but as a superpower in the region (laughs) uh, and uh, with a sphere of influence. The problem with that is leaving apart the specific manifestation of that, which is uh, creating alternative uh, powers and undercutting the governments of three Arab states and supporting the fourth, which is waging uh, raging war against much of its population. That is extremely destabilizing, and our tradition since World War II has been to operate on a global system of collective security against regional uh, Want to be hegemons and spheres of influence. We take a lot of risk doing this against really serious powers in the South China Sea and Ukraine, uh, and we're faced with the, possib- the, the perhaps, the need of doing that uh, vis-a-vis Iran in the region. Uh, is this, in, from terms of the report, something we don't need to worry about, or something that we can overcome by uh, outreach, people-to-people contacts, good diplomacy, and economics? Thanks. Thanks the first part
3: of it. Well, I think Ambassador Jeffries, the, the, the U.S., this was of the U.S.'s own making. I mean, the U.S., there was dual containment in the 90s, and Iraq and Iran were balancing each other out. Neither, Iraq wouldn't go uh, eastward, and then Iran wouldn't go westward, and the United States, under President Bush, took that away. They went and, and invaded Iraq, removed Saddam Hussein, and the Shias that were in Iran, the Iraqi Shia, went to, to Baghdad, and the Kurds. That are now in the north. We're all in Iran as well, uh, so that and in a way we've aided that um, uh, that thinking. So I think I think the Bush administration deserves you know in some ways that they've made this monster, uh, if you you know if you will, for their, their own their own mind. Um, but they absolutely they don't see the region the way that the United States does. They see that themselves as a rightful heir of of a great power with influence in Baghdad with influence uh, in uh, Lebanon, with influence in Syria. And so they're going to fight tooth and nail to keep that sphere of influence for themselves. And that's why it creates destabilization with, with the United States and, and its allies.
2: Um, I did not really envision Iran succeeding in establishing uh, dominance of the region. I, I saw in Iran that, at least for the next decade, is still Uh, a bit preoccupied with some of its domestic requirements, uh, still working very hard to sort of open up its economy, um, and that its relationships are, are finite. They're sort of limited in part by whether there's a receptive population in select Middle Eastern countries. I mean, four Middle Eastern countries as opposed to 20 something it does not it's i did not accept the premise that iran is inevitably the dominant power in the middle east i saw iran is still uh, a country that will be uh, important but that compared to you know the the alliance. if we take your premise that you know the security comes from alliance structures uh iran is disadvantaged because the gulf cooperation countries in their partnership with the united states are a much more robust alliance and iran is still a somewhat lonely country, its, ally- its relationship with Syria. Syria is a physically destroyed country. Um, you know The natural resources, the human capital, what are they going to do? Are they going to spend money reconstructing Syria when the war is over? Is that such a great ally to have? I don't see Iran as hugely advantaged in terms of who its friends in the region are.
4: Like, Although something yeah, I think yeah, that probably hasn't escaped Iranian notice yeah. is certainly the U.S. Yeah. relationship with the GCC is frayed somewhat. I mean, I don't think the GCC has many alternatives, and they've always been grumbling. It's kind of a common thing that they grumble about that yeah. feeling that the U.S. doesn't have their backs. But that yeah. relationship is yeah. fraying, and it's. Mm-hmm. Fair we some might w- even say that there's some instability that's been induced into the equation by the fact that I, I, they're more encouraged to act on their own now, the GCC countries, in ways that the U.S. might not
2: necessarily be Yemen being prefer- a really yeah, yeah, Yemen's example. A yeah, example. Yeah. But, but
3: I think the, the GCC countries are always afraid that the U.S. is gonna pivot to Iran, and I, I think that, that fear is, is exaggerated, because the Iranians don't want that. They don't, wanna, they don't wanna have that type of relationship with the United States.
1: Yeah. So we've but got the, about um, seven it. minutes left, so we're gonna do um, short questions and short answers. So um, here we go, in the back, right there.
6: Uh, Hi, my name is Jeff Stern. I'm from uh, George Mason. I'm a grad student there. My question is about the future of the Revolutionary Guards and the economy. And is it going to be possible for the US to
3: have a business relationship with Iran unless they privatize those industries. Thank S- you. Superb question. That's a, yeah, I'm here. I, That's a really good question. Um, as the JCPOA and, and how the sanctions are, are working right now, you still have, lar- I mean, the, the Revolutionary Guard, by some estimates, control 40% of the Iranian economy. So that makes them a real power center. And I think they view the JCPOA, certain elements of them, as leaving them out in the cold. And that's when they can be destabilizing. That's when you know, they, they kind of want the deal, some elements of them, not all, to not work. Um,
1: also, if it works, it cuts off on of the great off, black yeah, market yeah, businesses is, that kept them going for three decades, Exactly. Right?
2: Well, and has had to promise them certain percentage shares. Yes, yeah. it's, it's
3: that, the, he's had to push back, there's been a right. total push back and yeah. forth between them because uh, if, if he overreaches too much, then you know, they could sort of pull the rug out from under him. Yeah. You know,
1: so. Very good. Uh, right
6: back there. Hi, Josh Cram with the Truman National Security Project. I wanted to ask about uh, what your thoughts are in terms of the Obama administration's strategy on Iran after Election Day until it it you know moves out of uh, the White House. Um, I don't think it's wise to compare Iran and Cuba, but you've seen in the past couple of weeks and months the Obama administration's tried to make the the Cuba deal irreversible. Do you see the Obama administration doing anything in this period of time after the election to essentially solidify or continue to solidify the, the deal
1: with Iran? Does it doesn't need to be made more irreversible. Uh, Ellen?
2: Uh, I don't expect any dramatic things. And I think probably President Obama's you know, moment would have been a handshake or a conversation at the UN General Assembly that didn't happen. So I think that would have been the, 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 the bookend to his Iran uh, policy initiatives. I, I don't expect any dramatic uh, inter, you know, initiative between now and uh, January 20th.
1: Right here in the aisle. Mm-hmm.
5: My name is Hassan. I was born in Tehran. And I'm very happy to see the panel speaking about the place that I was born. Uh, there are two things that we are missing here. One, the Iranian foreign policy is inclusive, not exclusive, but recently they introduced the invitation of Egypt into the talks in Syria. Second, when Gulf states, as you say, we say Persian Gulf, they have America on their side, one day maybe Iran will decide to give a hot water port to the Russians outside of the Strait of Hormuz. And what do the panel think about that? We'll let's
1: see. Who wants to pick that one up first?
3: here I mean, I, I think this is the, the Iran. It's kind of funny, because you go outside the Gulf states, the Persian Gulf states, uh, it, it's their relationship with Egypt is kind of warming, because as Egypt is sort of pivoting away from Saudi Arabia, they're having some issues there. Uh, They want, they actually want better relationships with their neighbors. I mean, that's one of Rouhani's policies is we want good relationships with our neighbors. And even within the GCC, it's not all bad. Oman is very good and very strong. Qatar and Kuwait, not bad. Uh, It's the Saudis that are sort of dragging the rest of them down. Uh, As far as the hot water port, the Russians, I wouldn't put money on it. <laughs> that would not be, uh, as you said, it's against the Iranian Constitution. And, and once again, that goes against their notion of we are a great power. We're not going to invite another great power in and Although, give them access.
4: You know, maybe there are temporary contingencies. I mean, yeah. certainly they, there have been a lot of Russia port visits in the, in the Caspian and also in the Persian Gulf. They could be reaching out to the Chinese, things to sort of pressure Similar them. Similar
1: to what the United States is doing in the Pacific, where we're doing these sort of exactly. rotating visits. Mm-hmm. In the corner there, gentlemen, right there. In the back, back left corner, back there. Yep. Hi, my name is Raza Marashi. Thank you very much for a great discussion. Very, very much appreciated. Uh, My question is about what happens if the moderate or best case scenario doesn't pan out. Uh, Not a lot of discussion is placed into the idea of what if this kind of falls apart? What if the next Iranian president or the next American president doesn't invest the kind of political will into this process that the current Iranian president and the current American president do, what does that look like? What does a devolution of U.S.-Iran relations in the JCPOA look like in your guys' view? Uh, superb question because you know you heard Secretary Clinton give a speech at Brookings shortly after the deal was signed where she basically talked about extremely strict enforcement. Right. There were some people in the White House who thought that was a speech that President Obama should have given uh, after uh, the deal uh, was signed. It was different in tone. from. From his. And there are people who wonder whether, in about five years, when our attention is off on China or North Korea or Russia or some other problem, you begin to see fraying, especially after
2: a new Supreme Leader may come in. Mm -hmm. So, um, the strategy that I've envisioned doesn't deconstruct any of the components of current policy yet. It would be contingent on Things getting better. So it does uh, sort of allow for scenarios in which things would get worse, not better, and assumes that we have the capacity to respond to those. But I'm also arguing for, um, you know, sort of opening up our minds a little bit to changing our attitudes towards what's the end goal vis a vis Iran. And it's possible that the next president won't think that way. It's possible that the next president is more comfortable with seeing Iran sort of permanently in the adversary column um, and that the prospects for constructive positive engagement with Iran are really very limited that and I think Iran's comportment in the in the coming months uh, has some you know will will help determine what's the environment that the next American president uh, you know in, in inherits but I am still hopeful that the achievement of the Jikpoa in 2015 is a new baseline to think about U.S.-Iran relations, and so uh, and I think the Iranians have a lot to lose if things go- get so bad that the agreement is no longer, um, you know, operational or operative. So, well, it's, we it's, a, it's certainly a reasonable uh, scenario to think through.
1: We. Um have not run out of interesting topic matter here, but we have unfortunately run out of time to discuss it. So uh, Ellen, I wanna thank you very much for this report. Uh, Amir, Mike, I wanna thank you for terrific uh, discussion, and thanks all of you for superb questions along the way. And I appreciate it, and hope that post-election we can come back for more. Thanks.